Welcome to Murder and Mimosas. Just a quick disclaimer before we get started. Our show is Murder and Mimosas. It's a true crime podcast. This means that we do discuss crimes, including but not limited to disappearances, murder, and sexual assaults. All our episodes are told with the respect of the victims and the victims' families in mind. We strive to ensure that we provide factual information, but some information is more verifiable than others. With that, grab your mimosas and let's dive in. Welcome back. I'm Danica. And I'm Shannon. Shannon, do you want to tell everybody about the cool event we have coming up? Of course, Danica. So we will be doing a true crime trivia at Stone's Throw on January 12th at 630. We hope to see all of you there. And maybe we'll post on our Facebook a little hint to one of the questions beforehand. Yeah, so be sure to check it out. Get your true crime loving group, fans and friends, and come out and test your knowledge. Can't wait to see y'all. I have a case today that's a little bit different. It's really two separate cases in two different states by two different kids. Well, why are we talking about them together then? Because these two cases led to the Supreme Court ruling that juveniles being tried as adults in capital murder cases could no longer be given mandatory life sentences without parole. I know you talked a little bit about this ruling in episode 28 about Casey Joe. I do remember the killers in the episode getting re-sentenced, but their life sentence without parole was affirmed. I never thought about what cases led to the ruling from the Supreme Court. I wanted to do this case because I've done some research for juveniles or perpetrators, and this ruling seems to come about over and over. So I thought about having an episode kind of covering the background of the ruling, how it came about, and just have some general knowledge for when we reference it in the future. So let's start with the first case, and we'll start with the one that happened first. It happened in Blytheville, Arkansas on November 18th of 1999. There were three teenage boys, Derek Shields, who was 14, Travis Booker, who was 15, and Contrell Jackson, who was also 14. They were walking through the Chickasaw Courts housing projects, and as they were watching, like walking through there, they were talking and they hatched up a plan. They decided that they would rob a local video store called Movie Magic. They all agreed on the plan, and they started to walk towards the video store. Along the way, Control Jackson became aware that Derek Shields had something up his sleeve, literally. He had a 410-gauge shotgun up his, up his jacket sleeve. Control tells the other two that he will be the lookout while they go inside. When Derek and Travis enter the store, Derek points the gun at the clerk, who's 28-year-old Lori Troop. The two teens order Lori to, quote, give up the money. Lori told them repeatedly that she had no money, and even when the two continued berating her to give them the money, during this exchange between the three, Control walks into the store, and not long after he gets in there, Lori brings up calling the police. Of course, this frightens Derek, and he shoots Lori in the face. And once he shoots her, obviously the three flee, and they end up with no money. And so they have no money, and they've taken the life of an innocent woman, leaving her little boy Joey completely motherless. 
Oh my gosh, that's awful. I just don't understand how these boys could do something so nonchalant about robbery, guns, and violence. I agree. And not that it excuses them for the murder they committed, but let's hear a little bit from Contrell about the type of upbringing these boys had while they were in the housing projects. I was raised in a government housing project. My earliest childhood memory is when I was four years old. I watched my mother get arrested for shooting a neighbor. A few months later, me and my sister were being held by my mother on the Christmas Eve when the police came and got her and took her to prison. I had no relationship with my father, so I went to live with my grandmother. When my mom returned home, I watched her boyfriend physically and mentally abuse her. My childhood was surrounded by alcohol and drug abuse daily. At 11 years old, my brother went to prison for shooting a man. So about four months after the incident at Movie Magic, Control was in police custody for an unrelated charge. And for whatever reason, the detective decided to ask him about the Movie Magic incident. Control denied having knowledge, much less involvement in the crime. A year after that encounter, detectives ended up with a little bit more knowledge about Contrell's involvement, along with an arrest warrant, and they went to visit him at the Colt, Arkansas Juvenile Detention Center. The time, Ollie would tell police, was that Derek shot the lady. After being transported to Blyville, through, though, Contrell was a bit more open about what had happened that night. Providing the detectives with a statement about the events on tape. During his trial, Control was tried as an adult, though only 14 at the time of the crime he committed. He was found guilty of capital murder and aggravated robbery and was sentenced to life for the murder. He got no sentencing for the robbery, though, for some reason. So let's talk about another case that would be pivotal in changing laws. On July 15th and 16th, 2003 in Lawrence County, Alabama, another murder took place. Cole Cannon, who was 52 years old, had just moved into the trailer park three weeks prior. Cole was an avid baseball card collector. He had used to own a baseball card shop and he had an adult daughter. It was really all the neighbors knew um, since he hadn't been there long. That's really all they learned about him so far. Cannon had been drinking some the night of July 15th, and managed to burn the food he was cooking. Sullenly, and I'm sure a little bit embarrassed, he went to the Miller family trailer and asked if they had any food he could eat. Susie Miller started making some spaghetti for Cole. Evan Miller, who was 14, obviously in the Miller home, and his friend Colby Smith, who was 16, snuck into Colby's trailer and swiped some of his baseball cards. I don't know, Cole, but him having owned a baseball card shop probably would have loved to talk to the boys about the cards that might have let them in and have one or two of them if they had just asked. I agree, but they're bored teenage boys who had very little parental supervision, but we'll get a little bit more into Evan's home life a little later. So I was unable to find a whole lot out about Colby's home life, but I imagine it couldn't be too far different. It was also claimed later by the two that they originally went there to look for drugs, and when coming up shorthanded, they took the cards instead. My bet was in hopes to sell those cards for drug money. 
But the boys didn't just stop at snagging some baseball cards. They chose violence. During the night, the boys went over to Cole's to play drinking games and smoke some weed with him. Once they felt he was intoxicated enough not to notice, Evan stole Cole's wallet and the money from him. They each beat Cole using their fists on occasions and baseball bats on other occasions until he was unable to get up off of the floor. Cole sustained multiple rib fractures, blunt force trauma to the head, but he ultimately died of smoke inhalation. Wait, how's the smoke involved? Well, when the two boys were finally tired of beating Cole, they set fire to the trailer with Cole still in it and still alive, though just barely. The firefighter stated that there were four points of origin to the fire. The south bedroom, which came up to the hall, a bed in another room. The third point was on the couch, and the final was a couch cushion that was put on the floor. However, that wasn't the most gruesome part of the scene. They found blood all over the living room. It was splattered on the walls, the pillows, the coffee table, even a towel where they looked like they tried to mop up some of it. Evan Miller was not immediately charged. So during his free time from jail, he threw Cole's driver's license into a body of water. While trying to rid himself of evidence that might tie him to the crime, though, he went about bragging to different people about this heinous act. That just shows how childish he truly is. Hearing what he did, I forgot for a minute he was only 14, but that right there sounds like a stupid 14-year-old thing to do. I agree. And though we've heard crimes committed by grown adults that went around bragging of their crimes, too. Before we get into the trial, though, I want to give you insight on Evan's 14 years of life entailed before that night. Again, I would give you information on Colby's childhood and upbringing, but there's nothing in the court documents that really talks about it. Evan, on the other hand, had a rough time from the jump. He grew up in a home riddled with abuse, neglect, and drugs. It was bad enough that for over a year, Evan was in foster care. His home was so bad that a friend of Evan's testified in court that he felt Evan was better off in foster care because he had no parental supervision otherwise. There was also testimony from Evan's older siblings about the home not always having enough food. Oftentimes, the home had no power or water due to bills not being paid. And his older sister recounted how the family had almost died once from carbon monoxide poisoning when their parents tried to use a charcoal grill inside to warm the house. They also brought up that his stepfather was an abusive alcoholic while his mother was a drug addict. They also brought up Evan's suicide attempts, four to be exact. Keep in mind, he was only 14, and they testified that Evan was only a five-year-old kindergartner when he first attempted to take his own life. Evan was diagnosed with ADHD, ODD, and contact disorder. Now let's talk a little bit about the two boys' charges. Colby was charged and he pled guilty to felony murder and received life in prison with the possibility of parole. Evan chose to go to trial, which started three years after the murder in October of 2006. He was being charged with capital murder arson and capital murder robbery. Colby Smith would testify against Evan, as would the friends Evan bragged to. Colby was charged with much less. Is that because he agreed to testify for the state? While the court documents don't lay it out clearly to say that with 100% certainty, I do believe that is the case. Now, to get into the jury for Evan's trial. Evan's jury was all female, and when given time to deliberate, they came with guilty on all charges. However, they did not seem to understand 
the directions from the judge when sent to deliberate as they came back guilty on all charges, including the lesser charges. Like the charge, like the charges given by the state that the jury could choose if they feel the burden didn't meet the standard for capital punishment charge. Exactly. They essentially found him guilty of capital murder and in murder in a lower degree for the same crime, which obviously isn't allowed. They were sent back after being re-instructed. The jury found Evan guilty of capital murder arson and the capital murder robbery. Evan being a juvenile is unable to be sentenced to death, but with capital murder, it's a mandated life in prison with no parole. Now, as I said a few times, both of these cases played a key part in making mandatory life sentences for juveniles unconstitutional. A big proponent in this on Evan Miller's behalf in front of the Supreme Court was Dr. George Davis. According to Dr. Davis, quote, the part of the brain that guides rational decision making doesn't reach a dependable functional capacity until someone is in their late teens or early 20s. When complete, that frontal lobe and its prefrontal cortex inhibits impulsive emotional reactions. You'll get an innovation of emotional reaction, he said. You will get the capacity to plan ahead, to foresee consequences, to strategize about the best way to get something accomplished. The frontal lobe will also do things that take different kinds of factor factors into account, compare them, and decide between them. 14-year-old is still at the beginning of that process, and that development is complicated by neglect, abuse, and drugs, which shadows Miller's entire life before the 2003 killing, end quote. So is Dr. Davis saying Evan isn't responsible due to his age? No. They're arguing that his mind is not fully developed, so he should be allowed the opportunity for parole. On June 25th of 2012, the Supreme Court ruled that mandatory life without parole sentences for all children, 17 or younger, convicted of homicide, are unconstitutional. With this historic ruling, it set way for Control Jackson when he, after being shot down a year before the Arkansas Supreme Court, upheld a sentence. After the ruling, the Arkansas Supreme Court had to review Control's age, the background he grew up in, and especially the fact he was not the one to shoot anyone. It was decided that Control would be eligible for release. He was discharged from prison on February 21st of 2017. Keep in mind, he was 14 years old during the crime. This puts him at 32 years old for his release. Essentially, 18 years between the crime and the release. Was Evan Miller also released? Evan's sentence and case were evaluated, including not only his age, but his upbringing. However, given the brutality and the fact that Evan was the, quote, ringleader, his life sentence with no parole was reinstated. Okay, so to be clear, the ruling from the Supreme Court didn't state that life sentence with no parole were unconstitutional for juveniles, just that having mandated life in, or mandated life in sentence with no parole is what is unconstitutional. Correct. So they can still get a life in prison sentence with no parole, but it can't be mandatory. It can't just be handed down without reviewing. So after the ruling came down, past juvenile cases all over the country were reevaluated to determine and if the previous sentence of life in prison with no parole were just, it could be reaffirmed, or, like in Control Jackson's case, needed to be changed. 
Uh, you mentioned in the beginning that we have <clears throat> seen that in some of these past episodes. Right. So we've seen this a handful of times, and I feel fairly confident if we have other cases where juveniles were convicted previous to this ruling, we will see it again. That's true. I, I don't know. I, I think I feel conflicted at this. I mean, still 14 and the background Evan had to just seems, I don't know. I feel for him too. I do, but I definitely think that control should not have been given. Oh, no, I, I don't think that either. That I don't even know that he should have gotten 18 oh, years, no, which is I, what he served. I don't think so either. Um, I mean, he conspired to rob a place and that is, all he conspired to do. Um, and I know Evan participated a lot more, but 14 and you've known a life of neglect and abuse, you don't know any different. So I don't know. I agree. I'm a bit conflicted, but I like that there is at least the option for them to review these things now. That's true. Because science has come a long way and we now know what we didn't know then is how much our brain changes and how long it takes for, you know, us to be able to have that forethought. The thing that I think is surprising is, or I kind of see possibly happening in the future, is that it talks about, you know, you're not able to make that decision until you're in your, like, mid-20s. I wonder if in the future they will extend that from the legal age to the age in which your brain is fully developed. Um, I read somewhere it was 25, but still just thinking about what these boys endured. And I think the mom and me and the young ages just feels for them and wishing they could just be rehabilitated and not have to go through all this. I, I, I mean, agree. everybody may not be able to, but I hate their situations. But I think the option of parole, you can at least see, you know, like I think Evan should be given the chance for parole because... I think a parole board can see if he's taking the actions towards rehabilitation or not. So I don't know. just think of Cantrell. He's, he's known nothing else. Even after this, the, the life he was given and in prison, I don't think is going to rehabilitate him. I mean, hopefully it is, but I don't know where does he go from there when he gets out. That's true. Which we saw the interview with him. He seems yeah. fairly well-spoken. Um, he seemed very reflective on the childhood he grew up in. So um, maybe he found the right people. It sounded like he had some advocates there that maybe Hopefully. helped him down the right path. Um, but that is today's episode. That is um, two really important cases that laid way for juveniles to have the opportunity for parole, um, even if they're given a capital sentence and found guilty of that sentence so i think that's a really interesting one you guys tell us your thoughts we always recommend more bubbly and less oj cheers, cheers. if you'd like to see pictures from today's episode you can find us at murder.mimosas on instagram you can also find us at murder.mimosas on tiktok twitter and if you have a case you would like us to do can send that to murder.mimosas at gmail.com. And lastly, we are on Facebook at Murder and Mimosas Podcast, where you can interact with us there. We love any type of feedback you can give us, so please rate and review us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
Thank you.